0: Welcome to the Axial podcast. Axial is an early stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early stage life science companies, often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who's compelled to build their own enduring business. Okay, Brian, um, nice talking. Last like you know, 12 minutes. So we have maybe like 40 minutes to have a conversation about your whole story. So hopefully we can be as efficient as possible, but uh, thanks for doing this. I'm a huge fan of your work um, and just excited to hear about your journey and hear about the work, the research you're doing right now. And then, you know, kind of stuff you're kind of cooking up uh, for the future. So uh, maybe you start off and just talk about your background and
1: and how you got into science and go from there. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for having me. It's really uh, great to get to chat about my journey and how I got here. I think like everyone, it feels like a random series of you know chance events that lead you to where you are. But I guess I'll start at my undergraduate training, which was at the University of Maryland. And I worked for a biophysicist, David Fushman, there doing kind of structural studies of proteins. And in his lab, my first project was to use protein chemistry to kind of modulate the dynamics of a protein to study how that impacted its, its binding to partners, But what I got really excited by was this idea of controlling molecules, right? Using chemistry to control molecules with, you know, potentially biological applications, but really just this idea of controlling molecules I thought was really cool. And I think inherently I'm kind of a builder. That's my kind of philosophy in life. I like to tinker. I like to, you know, I do woodworking, that sort of thing. I really like the idea of like just building things. Um, So I'm kind of maybe an, an engineer in that way. And that's what attracted me to chemistry. And and that research inspired me to think about building molecules and controlling molecules. So, when I was looking for um, graduate school opportunities, I really wanted to move into chemical biology. And I figured, you know, after that undergraduate experience, I wanted to learn how to make small molecules and do kind of synthetic organic chemistry, but in the context of, you know, an application, a biological application. So, I ended up going to UC Berkeley and worked with uh, Christopher Chang, who was uh, a assistant professor at that point. And, you know, he had really, even at that early time, established himself as kind of a leader in just designing molecules, right? Having this really cool ability to, you know, identify a biological problem and then, you know, go to the, the dry erase board and sketch out a molecule that has never existed in the universe that could potentially solve that problem. And then, you know, it's up to us as the grad students to then go in the lab and figure out how to make it and uh, and see if it actually works or not, and then use it in various applications. And and that whole approach to science really inspired me. Right. This idea that you can have an idea of a molecule, make that molecule and have it do something in a biological system still to this day, I think, is one of the coolest things we can do as, as chemists. Um, so I worked with Chris for um, for my PhD, and and really just loved that experience. He's just a fantastic mentor, and just has this incredible ability to just you know invent molecules, really. Um, but you know, after that, I kind of decided that for my postdoc, I wanted to take a different approach to molecular design um, that wasn't so kind of prescriptive and defined, like like maybe Chris's approach. And and I went to work for David Liu at Harvard. Um, and it's because I, you know, I was reading David's papers and ended up um, getting to uh, see him give a seminar, host him for a student, and invite seminar at at Berkeley. And I got really inspired by this idea of using evolution as a de- as a design philosophy. You know, the uh, it's almost the opposite of the Chris Chang approach, right? Chris really has this incredible ability to think up molecules and and build them from from kind of chemical design principles. David was using evolution, and and still is as really a way to discover molecules that have a function and kind of a mechanistic agnostic approach to molecular design. And, and that got me really excited because I thought that if I had this ability to kind of make molecules with my hands and also use evolutionary principles to discover molecules, that would be a way to bring new molecules into the world that hadn't existed before. So um, so I went to work for David and, and again, had a fantastic experience as a postdoc. He is just one of the most creative scientists, I think of our time. Um, his ability to just um, not only tackle important problems, but do so with this really creative kind of visionary approach was just inspiring to be around. So um, I really enjoyed my time with him. Um, And then, you know, eventually I started my own lab here at the University of Chicago in 2014. So I guess it's about eight years ago now. Um, And, you know, my lab really was founded on this idea of, you know, I'm in a chemistry department and my passion is making molecules right so we founded the lab on this idea that we want to make molecules as tools to study and control biology but the molecules we make are kind of agnostic in what they're built out of so we have synthetic organic chemists synthesizing molecules we have protein engineers designing biomolecules and, and rna molecules we use evolutionary principles we use rational design principles we use selection and computation and we kind of just do everything right um in service of making molecules that solve problems we think are important within biological systems
0: awesome yeah that's a great like First, that's a great like start. Uh, maybe to back it all up, I, I, Chris Chang is one of my favorite scientists. You know, he's just uh, like a uh, exceptional person, but really nice and just like have a great conversation with them. And Michelle's awesome too. Uh, you know, when you were making that transition from like undergrad to grad school and joining, why Chris Chang's lab essentially, right? Was it um, was it more of a passion for trying to learn the, the kind of the, the kind of the tools to synthesized molecules was it chris as a mentor um was it maybe his research on metals or maybe all of the above but what will make chris chang you know what, what might you, what made you want to like work with chris all the great
1: chemists in berkeley um yeah well actually yeah and so i went to berkeley because i didn't know chris when i was an undergraduate oh. i actually went to berkeley to work for carolyn bertozzi and i oh in her lab and had a wonderful experience and she is one of my all-time favorite scientists. And I worked for my rotation mentor in her lab was um, Jeremy Baskin, who's a professor at Cornell now, who's really good, um, a, a, an amazing chemical biologist himself. Um, so I had a great experience in Carolyn's lab and, um, and had always planned to join her lab. And I think it would have been fantastic. But then, uh, you know, I ended up rotating in Chris's lab just because he was, a, you know, at the time, an assistant professor. And, you um, and you know someone who was up and coming I guess but you know at the end of the day I've always made every decision for myself uh, for my own career choices and the way I run my lab really based off of the people you know I think at the end of the day most people like me who are interdisciplinary scientists let's say I can get excited about a lot of different areas of science I didn't really have some sort of specific plan for myself In terms of what I really needed to learn or what skills I needed, it's really picking the people, and that's why I chose to work with Chris. You know, he he um, even then was clearly a very special mentor Um, at the time because I was, you know, a a young graduate student. I was pretty self-reflective. I thought being in a smaller lab environment with a little bit more attention and specific motivation from the mentor would probably have benefited me, and I think that was true. I think being in a um in an assistant professor's lab was great for me at that point in my career. So um it was really a combination of what I identified in myself as my own weaknesses that I thought, you know, Chris specifically at that point in his life could help fill. Um, and then really just being inspired by him and thinking that this is someone that I trusted with, you know, my own future basically. And and I think that was, you know, it definitely Ended up being true that he is, you know, one of the one of the great mentors of our time. Has produced so many wonderful academics. He's incredibly supportive. Um, so yeah, so it was really about the people way more than specific science. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's like this tension when
0: you're a young scientist. You're like, do I join the famous lab and get all the money and the resources, and I don't have to worry about like, you know, h- how much I have to spend for reagents, or do I join the up and coming lab and you know? You make a larger impact, but you know, you did, like you said, you definitely have to um, have a good taste in people. Um, and Chris is definitely you know, up there. So uh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. And then during the postdoc in David Liu's lab, that kind of seems
1: more well thought out than than kind of the grad school plan. We're, we're, well, sort of but but honestly even then it was really about the person way more than the science you know like I was definitely inspired by the science but I was also just really inspired by David I was just like I just want to be near people that are incredibly mm. successful and you know both David and Chris are both incredibly smart and successful scientists but they're also very different and I like that also about David I was like here's someone that just runs their lab differently approaches science differently you know both specifically with the techniques but also just to kind of scientific philosophies are a bit different and just to just to see someone else who's successful i mean i think sometimes when people are kind of navigating their career they think too hard about all these little details that don't matter at the end of the day right you just need to learn how to be a good scientist and and that's just from seeing people who are really good at it you know running the lab choosing problems um managing the group uh so that's that was really more so than anything else the rationale for going to david it's just like attach yourself to someone who views the world differently than you has a successful approach and just try to see how they do that, how they work. Cool. Yeah. And then Harvard is definitely different than Berkeley, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) A whole different environment uh, in terms of, um, you know, day to day, you kind of, you feel the pressure at Harvard a a little, I think a little bit more um, because there's so many different departments and conferences where Berkeley seems more of like a little safe haven for scientists where you can kind of, Maybe get out of the get out of the bubble. Uh, stay you stay in a bubble almost. But in David's lab, I'm just you trying to join pre-CRISPR, you
1: know. Before, yeah, before I mean there were there were CRISPR projects when wow. I pre-base editing for sure. So base editing took off right after I left David's lab and really, um really took over. And so what, was your a, lot of your a lot of your work around Pace and kind of?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or? I was
1: I was I, I joined the Pace projects pretty early on. Cool. That was that was most of my postdoc work with David. Is you know I had never done really kind of synthetic biology, so learning everything from you know cloning and construct design and you know obviously pace and evolution and all those sorts of things was was really all my postdoc work.
0: Cool. Okay, let's go over and send him your lab. I think what makes you really unique is you already said this is you have all these different kind of characters in your lab. You have organic chemists, different forms of biology, synthetic biologists cell biologists you, you attract like a whole diverse set of of scientists to then you know kind of kind of solve the problems you're working on but when you set up your lab in 2014 at chicago maybe you talk about why you chose chicago of all places you know definitely it's a lot it's very different from berkeley and harvard chicago is uh I, I was thinking about going to college there and the motto of chicago is it's, it's where fun goes to die so, you know, why Chicago? That's one question. Uh, but... Uh, and and then, uh, how did you define the prom set? That's often a lot of scientists have their own groups. How do you define what proms to go after? Maybe Chris and David really influenced you there.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can start with, you know, why Chicago? I mean, you know, at the time... Uh, there was one really strong chemical biologist here, probably, Xuan he, who was um, uh, was kind of leading the charge for building up chemical biology here. There were some other really good structural biologists and biochemists, but he was really the sole chemical biologist. And, and you know, maybe that was also another decision that from the outside world could have been viewed as a bit risky. Um, but, you know, from visiting, I got the sense that it was a, an area of focus that they wanted to build up here um and then you know the advice i was given again picking again getting back to this idea that every decision i made was based off of the people getting back to the idea that like the people are what matters most in science i was given the advice that when you're starting out as an assistant professor you know that having a good not faculty mentor i mean it's partly a faculty mentor but even just someone who you can kind of bounce ideas off of who can challenge your assumptions and who can be someone again that you can just try to emulate and learn from was really important. And, you know, ideally that person is probably someone who's kind of mid-career successful, but still kind of remembers what it was like to start their lab. That's kind of, I think the perfect phenotype of someone who can really serve that role for an assistant professor. Um, And to me, Schwann was just like that perfect person because, you know, he had recently gotten his Howard Hughes and he was, you know, really, you know, doing incredibly well, running a very vibrant research program, but again, was still young enough to kind of recognize that, you know, what the world looks like for, um, you know, an up-and-coming assistant professor. So I was really excited about getting to work with him. He was always someone, he was always one of my favorite scientists um, from my time, um, really all, all the way back into graduate school. So. I was excited by that. And then, you know, the University of Chicago was hiring a lot of chemical biologists at the time. So they hired um, myself and Ray Mullering uh, that same year, who who also came in as an assistant professor. He was kind of a Ben Cravat, Greg Verdine person doing proteomics and, and other sorts of cool science. Then also Yamuna Krishnan, who was a senior hire from India, started also that same time. So the three of us all came in together and, and Yamuna is just a complete rock star um, with imaging and, and lysosomal biology and, and, and DNA nanotechnology. So there's just kind of all this growth and that was exciting. And and I, you know, got really interested in, in trying to build something new. And then, you know, since then now, you know, our chemical biology group here is just, you know, really thriving. We have, um, we've, we've built, we've built on top of that. So, um, Wei Shen Teng, who's another David Lu person started her lab a few years ago and she's doing great. And then Jack Shostak just moved here. Like, um, Jack yeah. moved to Chicago? Yeah, Jack here too, yeah.
0: What I didn't know that wow so we have like a
1: very I was you know uh, arguably we have one of the strongest chemical biology groups in the country now I mean we our group is just um, we have all bases covered so uh, it went from you know and it was fun to be part of that building process so now we you know we do fantastic I think. Um, and I'm right in the middle of that. It's great to have, you know, I, I really think you want to be in a department in an environment where there are people doing things better than you and having, you know, Schwann and Yamuna and Jack around. Um, it, it keeps you on your toes. It's good. Wow. I think it's the theme of you're a builder. To go somewhere with its growth, go build something, it's meaning there. Yeah. And just being around people that I like. Like we're all friends. Like I really like having colleagues that uh you know that inspire me and that that I that I want to spend time with and hear about their science. It's just a really um, you know, it's a really open place. I mean, there are other logistical reasons that UChicago is special. We have our medical school right on campus, it's a highly interdisciplinary, you know, interdisciplinary university. It's private, but it's also in the Midwest, so it has this nice balance of you know, resource, you know, lots of resources and opportunities. But at the same time, I think being a little bit disconnected from, let's say, Boston, if you're doing what we do, can be useful because it can allow you to not necessarily chase every trend as quickly as possible. You can kind of be a little bit more free. People can kind of, you know, let you do what you want to do. And, you know, and I guess the other thing I should say about myself being self-reflective, I really hate being told what to do. That's why I'm an (laughs) academic. I want to do what I want to do. I could never have a boss. I would be the worst. Um, so that's why That's why I wanted to be an academic scientist, is I just want to do what I want to do, right? And I feel like here, I get that more so probably than just about anyone else. Like, I, no one has ever questioned what I want to do. I have resources to do what I want to do. I just like do my thing and it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I think
0: that's the dream for everyone, including myself, right? And then Bill, you know, have different ways of, of going after it. Uh... I didn't know Jack. I, I used to work at undergrad. I used to work at MGH. Uh-huh. So Jack had his lab there, and I would see Jack wandering around. He had really long hair. It was always, it was a, it's kind of a freaky. It was my first Nobel Prize person I ever met. And I was like, kind of, kind of all, always star, starstruck. Uh, and he, I'm assuming he's still doing the origins of life research. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, good for Chicago. Uh, Jack is just this wonderful person. Uh, wow. Amazing, yeah. He's he's a special, very special scientist. He's one right. of these
0: people. We were talking about David Lu before recording and like you know what you know. David's one of the people. We can't replicate. Jack's one of these people. You can't even you can replicate in any way. Just I no. Admire him. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so then he said to your lab, go to Chicago. I mean, the second kind of question would be, uh, I think every 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 person has this problem. How do you define your problem set? Um, how do you define your interests? And I think. Maybe you can talk about how maybe Chris, David informed you with their styles and maybe how you create your own style. Okay, I think definitely your lab is really one of a kind in terms of chemical biology, in terms of your ability to develop new tools, make new discoveries. And then kind of, it's. I, I talk to a lot of scientists all over the world and you're one of the few labs that can bring like five different this, this skill sets to the table pretty in a world class way so uh how do you even recruit those people to come from your lab is a, a whole second issue but yeah yeah how do you how do you define your prom set um, yeah that's
1: a great question i mean so so like the i guess you know it's interesting to think back i think that you know the lab philosophy was really built around this idea that 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 we you know what? What we would do is pick problems that we think are important, and then just try to tackle those problems. And that's not to say that that's always the right approach. I mean, I think another you know more classic model is maybe you you build a lab that's really good at a specific technique, right? You you build this infrastructure and experience and knowledge base with the technique, and then you kind of point that technique or model or whatever in a positive direction that that could have an impact on the world. For us, I mean, for better or worse, what I what I tell prospective graduate students is like we're not especially good at anything, right? There's no special skill set that we have that no one else has, right? We do a lot of everything, uh, but I think what you know, ideally, you know, would make us special is that we pick problems that are important, right? Or at least we think are interesting. Um, getting this back back to this idea that we're not told what to do, right? We pick problems that we think are inherently interesting or important. Um, and then we go after those problems. So yeah, a student that's attracted to my lab is really the sort of student phenotype that is really interested in the big picture, right? And it could be basic science. It could be, I really want to understand this process of evolution, or it could be really applied. Like here's a disease area that I think is really important. and I want to do something that could potentially have an impact in this disease area. And then they come and they just do whatever they need to do to make that happen, right? It could be chemistry or bioengineering or you know, animal studies, I mean, who knows? And they just kind of go after that problem. And again, it's not to say that that's the right approach to science. I think an equally valid approach is to say, I wanna to go to graduate school and join a lab that's really world expert in this thing. And I'm just gonna learn that thing from them and that's fine, right? Um, But it's just not the way, it's not the way I get excited about science. I really get excited about these big picture ideas and moving, you know, methodically towards something that could really have an impact in the world. Um, And then, you know, changing our research depending on how the world changes around us. And and we've done that, you know, several times. So, yeah, so I actually think it, it makes it in some ways easier to build a lab culture and to recruit people because it just means that the kind of alignment with overall motivation structure is the most important thing specific skill sets or experiences are not so relevant to our lab, because people are going to have to learn many things while they're here, they're going to have to troubleshoot lots of aspects of their project. So it's much more about bringing people in that kind of have that mindset of problem oriented science and are willing to kind of take a risk and sort things out as, as they kind of navigate their project. So that's how I built the lab. And then in terms of like specific project areas we focused on right it's been a combination of things that we identified as interesting inherently um some from me some from the lab just kind of organically building up over time and then some from just our environment and collaborations so um, you know an example of that is we're obsessed now with targeting rna both for basic science purposes and for therapeutic purposes and that really emerged from collaborations again with my colleague shuan Hu, who um who's really an expert in rna regulation and initially we were just kind of working with them toward developing some new tools for things they were interested in and then that really spun out into all sorts of new projects in our lab thinking about rna as a therapeutic target and just an area of biology that really needed new tools so you know at the end of the day everyone in my lab is trying to make a molecule do something new right that can be synthesizing or protein engineering or evolving or all sorts of different things but you know again it's, it gets back to this idea that we're all building molecules to solve a problem um, that problem can be applied or basic science or or therapeutic um, but it's all about kind of building molecules
0: Cool, well, that makes sense i think one thing we pull a thread on uh, is something i observe scientists early on in their careers they're the ones defining the problems because they often come from a postdoc or they come from prior experiences and they kind of know what they're good at, and they, they kind of rack up papers, so to speak, or rack up discoveries that way. But over time, as the lab grows bigger, um, they become more of a filter. That's something I've observed. Something you know, they become more of like a filtering tool in the lab, where it's like ideas come to them, and then they have the taste and experience to say, you know, don't do that, do that, and then they let their team execute. And so maybe in the if, at least, what's your role now in the lab? Are you more? Are you still kind of maybe? kind of said this word organic right a lot of this work has organically emerged uh but your role in the lab now do you see yourself more as a filtering mechanism or are you still kind of like telling people
1: hey here's like the four tasks in rna we need to solve let's go yeah yeah, it's a great question i mean i think it's it's a mix of all of that right i think that you know i think a lot about in terms of managing a group and running a group you know how do you set up the the environment to kind of maximize and foster creativity um and you know and that entails many different things but you know trying to build an environment where people feel safe to fail right feel safe to take on risky ideas and try things and then yes sometimes i filter and i'll say well that's not such a great idea you shouldn't do that and then someone will prove me wrong and make something work that i didn't think was possible and that's like the dream right i love when that happens Mm -hmm. You know, even this idea of being a filter, it's not it's not a filter so much as, you know, saying you can't do this or you have to do that. I don't I don't run the group like that. It's more just building an environment where people feel free to explore, take on risk, um, build up their own kind of research portfolio in a way that like maximizes their impact or mitigates risk for their particular career goals. I think a lot about, you know, individual group members like that. And then my job is really you know if you view your job like that as a manager it actually becomes really fun because then it's really about figuring out like what is the most impactful thing we can do you know how do we steer the ship in a big picture but i think individual team members in my group feel a lot of autonomy to kind of make their project their own or if they're working in a team environment like let that team kind of figure out the solutions to those problems so yeah. So right now, I think the lab is it's a combination of me helping steer projects and being really active and then the projects kind of taking on a life of their own and then students kind of bringing in their own or trainees in general, bringing in their own interests and ideas to the projects to kind of make make them their own projects. So, um, yeah, that's that's I think a lot about, though, like, how do you set up any sort of team based environment to be creative risk-taking and supportive for that sort of science because i think for what we do that's that's really we have to have that like the fuel of our research program is creativity so we need to make sure that that is constantly an influx into the group right um and that requires a very specific type of environment i think
0: yep i agree i think that's kind of like the it's always this tension i've observed in, in every lab is is like how to define problems and then but leave it open-ended where new things happen unexpectedly. And it's, it's uh, I think you, you kind of distilled it right, right? Having a grad student postdoc or somebody pull off an experiment that you didn't expect to work. And that's always where it's like really magical. And that's what I love about science is that there's that you kind of know something no one else knows just for a little bit. It's like a magical feeling. Um, and And, and, and it, it's even more magical when no one expected it to work. And so, you know, Ladies. history of science is always – Riddled with those examples, um, maybe we can also talk about then how you recruit talent. You, you kind of said something really interesting: alignment of motivations, which is maybe you know it's not so much saying, "Hey, we want these chemists who are really good at synthesizing molecules or these really good protein engineers." Say so you all are welcome as long as we're aligned on motivations. And so, how do you like when you interview new people? You recruit new talent, um, and, and how do you think about how do you how do you uh, determine somebody is aligned with the the motivations of the the group. Um, Is that, is it more, yeah. Is it more based on like their past experiences or is it more based on like maybe more intangible things like passion or, you know, um, um, what's the like, like like veracity or something? (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, no, it's not so much that it really, you know, so there's a couple ideas there, you know, one is, you know, we have a, I would say, thinking about building a lab culture, we have a very positive lab culture. And that's really important to me, not only because it's good for being a good mentor and helping trainees and having people be happy is important. Even if you ignore all of that, it's actually important because again, that's what you need for a creative environment, right? You need people that feel comfortable working together, spitballing crazy ideas being wrong like you need a positive environment to be the fuel of that creativity so that's one of the most important things to me is that you have to have an environment that allows for that to happen again ignoring all the other good reasons to have a good lab environment just for the sole reason that we need that in order to let our lab run, um, it's really important. So that's part of it is having people that get inspired by working in teams, by being in a team environment. And again, I think you could make a case that like going to graduate school or your postdoc and just like getting in your hood, doing your thing, getting the work done as quickly as you can, that's logical. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it just wouldn't be aligned with what I need in my group in order to be successful. Um, So that's that's part of it is just the kind of lab culture and making sure people get inspired by team based science and are willing to work through the struggles that inevitably come along with doing team based science, because that's what we need to make our projects work. Um, And then other things are just, you know, people who, you know, view adversity that's going to emerge in a problem, you know, when I pitch a project and I say, here's something we want to do. We know how to do half of it but the other half we literally have no idea you're gonna have to either figure it out or talk to people or just run around campus and start knocking on doors i think for some people that sounds terrifying that sounds like that why would i join a group that doesn't know how to do what i need to do for other people that's really exciting they're like wow i get to be the one to build this in the lab that sounds really exciting i'll be the one that gets to teach the next person and i'll become the the lab person that does this new thing that sounds really exciting so that's another area where Um, is that, is that energizing or, or terrifying for someone, I think would be another indicator of whether this sort of approach to science is a good fit.
0: Cool. Yeah. I think that
1: no one in the Dickinson lab will, is going to do a project alone. That's what it seems like. Uh, That's that's right and and again it's and it's not to say that it's not autonomous right but the idea that there's a collaborative spirit right that that you'll be the primary on a project and there'll be a secondary person who has some experience that will help you with that and you're going to be the secondary on someone else's right this idea that like it's a supportive environment and sometimes it's very active collaboration like which means like okay you're going to be a co-author on a paper or whatever but in a lot of times it's just like supportive environment like you're going to help someone with an experiment they don't know how to do because that's the environment that we've built. And you know that in the long run, that's going to benefit you as well. Yeah. So it's a mix of both of those practical and also just kind of and, more stuff. And Brian, and at least in
0: academia, that type of culture is very rare. You know, you walk in most labs, and, you know, if not most, maybe like a good part, maybe a third or something. Most scientists are like kind of in their desks and no one's yeah. talking. And it's kind of feels like it's like that sometimes you watch sports teams and the best sports teams are always talking to each other whereas yes. sometimes the worst force teams are just locked into their position and they're not really working together and sometimes you walk in labs you kind of feel that there's no vibrancy to it or some labs you kind of oh you see people collaborating he, he like kind of at the high level so yeah or, or, or,
1: cross labs, even across labs i mean that's i mean that's yeah. the other that's the other real strength we have here is, like i said all of us chemical biologists faculty we're all friends, we really like each other. And I think that trickles down to the labs, our labs are all friends, they collaborate, they interact, they get, you know, lunches together. I mean, it is a very open environment where people, um, you know, it's a very tenuous thing to maintain, right? Like, it's hard to maintain that sort of environment. But um, but again, like for me, it's like, okay, what's the role of academic science? We train people, hopefully we do a few things that matter, but at the end of the day, most of academic science doesn't matter, right? So the reason I'm doing this is because it's enjoyable and you want to build a culture that makes it fun. And it's not fun. That sort of, you know, siloed approach to science, I think just takes a lot of the fun out of it for me. So, um, I, yeah.
0: I, I agree. I think uh, I think we're aligned in terms of we want to do things and have known entail- health I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Uh, and that's you know, always, if you can, I think to do that though, you have to be the best at something. So I think probably, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think that's fine. One thing too, you're the best at what you do. So <laughs> you have to kind of uh, acknowledge that too, where it's like you have to be really good at one thing to be able to get to the point where you, know, you have a lot of autonomy. I think the same thing probably if you're people in your lab, where you have to train them to be really world class and something that's Really, I think what makes your lab truly unique in the midst of all these other labs. Uh, you know, I am assuming it's inspired by David's lab, where David has kind of a, I know people in his lab, very similar culture, um, although a little, a little more, a little bigger because, you know, it's David. Uh, maybe we can transition towards your research. And you know, how I like to segment it is like you have evolutionary tools, and then you have RNA, epigenetics, kind of various modifications. Uh, and then you use used chem- the, the binding things chemistry, developing mm-hmm. molecules to like probe and explore uh, both areas. Uh, I don't know. You have a lot of papers over the last eight years in your group. I don't know. Uh, there's some papers we could discuss if you want, or maybe we can talk about particular anecdotes in each in, in kind of various scientific projects you uh, your lab sure. is going after. I don't know. I'll let you take the lead on that. I don't really. I can talk. We can talk about specific papers I think are exciting, but I don't want to. Uh, I can
1: talk maybe general. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, so, you know, our lab is, we have a couple subgroups right now, and maybe I'll talk about two of them. I mean, so, you know, picking problems that have maybe a more medium-term impact is what got us really excited about RNA regulation. Mm -hmm. We were studying it for basic science purposes, and then got really interested in targeting RNA for therapeutic applications. And, you know, the motivation there is really practical, that there are a lot of diseases, especially within neurological disorders, that, they seem intractable. You know, think of things like neurodegeneration and autism. These are things that we're kind of obsessed with in the lab right now that seem so complicated. And there's there's not a lot of hope right now, I think, for therapeutics in these areas. So to me, that's the starting point. Okay, that's where academia can come in. Um, A lot of industry is not even touching these in, in various ways because it is so risky. So let's start building up ideas and, and concepts around targeting, you know, neurological disorders that seem really challenging. Um, and then that fits in with RNA regulation, because RNA regulation is the way that cells kind of fine tune gene expression. And a lot of these complex disorders um, really emerge from dysregulation of gene expression. I mean, actually, really all disease is due to g- dysregulation of gene expression in one way or another. Um, Now, if you want to knock something out or, you know, overexpress something, we have tools to do that. And if you think about drugs, right, in the clinic, basically every drug we have, either, you know... Uh, inhibits or destroys or removes or sequesters. it just basically blocks information within the central dogma in one way or another, whether it's at the protein level like most things or at the or at the DNA level. So RNA provides opportunities to just do more um, to to subtly repress gene expression, to activate gene expression, to cause changes in the proteogenic products of gene expression. So there's a lot of, Engineering opportunities within RNA to kind of control gene expression in lots of different ways. So a couple of years ago, we built a program, kind of starting to you know just just thinking about these ideas of targeting RNA with engineered uh, molecules. Um, we think about these usually as bifunctional molecules that can you know one one component that binds an RNA of interest. Um, in a sequence specific manner or structure specific manner. And then another component that um, either itself is an enzyme or or delivers regulatory pathways to the RNA as a way to kind of just retune the regulation of gene expression at that RNA level. So that was the kind of framing of of how we started this. And then, you know, specifically along those lines, we have a lot of different projects. We have a protein based system that we use to do this. It's kind of similar to CRISPR systems. It's a guide dependent um rna regulatory system called certs we have um, uh, some nucleic acid-based systems that do this that are engineered nucleic acids and now we're working on various strategies to move into kind of small molecule or peptide-like systems as well so you know again it's molecule agnostic it's really the problem how do we discover and engineer bifunctional molecules that target rna regulation with an eye toward therapeutic opportunities and then you know let's throw lots of different ideas at that protein-based systems, nucleic acids, small molecule, um, other genetic systems as well, um, and then try to try to address those kind of, you know, high clinical unmet needs. Um, so that, that's kind of one example of a project that's now spun off in, in many different directions and kind of captures that idea of having um, lots of different people thinking about a problem and then figuring out ways to tackle it in hopefully creative ways. Interesting.
0: And so then when you think about like, okay, so a high level that makes sense where rna controls is is like the, the in the middle of central dogma so it's where the action's at and it's, it's, it's you can figure out ways how to modulate rna expression activity you can begin to like you know you have a stranglehold over protein production and you know have an impact on a bunch of diseases not only ones that are from rna uh, dysfunction but also just protein dysfunction in general how did you think about like specific modifications <laughs> To go after and that's kind of where it gets a little challenging in terms of you've done a lot of research in terms of you have to selectively like, add modifications, maybe remove them. Hi, hi, uh, were there certain kind of uh, certain side modifications that were harder than others? Um, you know, is there some sort of limit right now in terms of RNA editing that maybe isn't apparent to me? That is apparent to you? Um, things like that. Like what? What are the? What's the upper limit right now in the field? What are the kind of the big problems? That are like kind
1: of still a little unsolved in controlling or editing RNA. Yeah. So, I mean, so when, and even the, just to for definition's sake, you know, RNA editing to me is one very specific thing, which is making a base change to an RNA. So, when people say RNA editing, kind of definitionally, that would mean usually mm-hmm. you ADAR. Um, or some other specific editing enzyme to cause a single base edit in RNA, which is really cool. We've, we've done some of that. Um, there are lots of both academic labs and startups doing A-R based RNA editing right now, which is um, really cool. Um, so. We know one idea that we've been playing with is we don't necessarily wanna chemically modify the RNA. So the way RNA regulation works in many cases in mammalian systems is the mRNAs themselves are chemically modified in a variety of different ways, Uh, methylations and other base modifications, for example. Um, But the way that those modifications function is usually the chemistry itself doesn't do a lot. Like a methylation M6A, that chemical perturbation to the mRNA doesn't really do a lot by itself. What it does do is it serves as an adapter, right? as a kind of a recognition motif for other regulatory proteins to bind to. So really what we've been doing in the academic lab is really thinking about designing, and these are called reader proteins, RNA proteins that bind maybe in a modification or a structure or a regulatory specific manner. So we've been more thinking about how do we hijack those pathways and make them no longer modification dependent, but make them dependent on, engineered systems that we can control. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to necessarily think about changing the chemistry of the RNA within a cell. Instead, we can take these pathways that are oftentimes chemical modification dependent, and then make them no longer modification dependent, make them dependent on the factors that we engineer into the system Mm -hmm. and kind of redirect them in the way we want to redirect them. So we're still annotating the different functions we can do there. I have a graduate student who's going through a big screen of different RNA regulatory pathways to figure out which ones are amenable to kind of hijacking in this way with an engineered kind of system. Um, But we're kind of you know trying to build up the repertoire of different functions we can control RNA with when delivered with these sorts of bifunctional molecules. Cool. And you're totally right. I mean, yeah,
0: targeting RNA is this umbrella, and then maybe base editing is you know one small component of what we can do to target RNA, maybe beyond, you know, editing is a sexy part of, you know, maybe the field because it involves, you know, it's maybe kind of somewhat related to CRISPR, right? So it gets kind of the, it gets some of the, um, I don't know what the word is, it gets some of the, like, the after, the, after the, 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 the I don't know, the sprinkles or something, I don't have no clue. But when you think about targeting RNA in general, what do you see as kind of the most productive strategies? You know, there are some, there's a lot of work around uh, um, uh, and, and kind of using, I you know, think, bi bifunctional molecules to help degrade RNA or selectively degrade RNA. Yeah. Um, what do you think? That, like when you think about targeting RNA in general, to have an impact on disease, from your
1: perspective, what do you think would the most productive paths of research will be over the next couple years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think yeah. So, so Matt Disney's work with Ribotax is a huge inspiration for us. He's like amazing. So um he's obviously one of the one of the leaders in that kind of small molecule targeting space. You know, I think, you know, I I guess I would challenge the question a little bit in the sense that if one were to ask what are the most um, promising strategies to target proteins? Right. I think, you know, the obvious answer is, well, who knows? It's disease and context dependent. Right. Antibodies can do great things, but they are limited and protex are super jazzed up. We're all excited, but, you know, they're not going to solve all problems. So the idea with RNA, I think, is really it's much more about well, if you think about any sort of therapeutic. Right within biotechnology at least the therapeutic is going to emerge from a combination of a technology that you have a therapeutic indication you're going after and then probably a delivery strategy and it's the marrying of those three things right which are equally weighted probably that that actually is, is what will drive success so then it's about you know what technologies with indications align and then what delivery strategies align with those there's not going to in my opinion be a one-size-fits-all in some cases let's use examples, AAV is going to be a really good strategy for certain diseases and maybe CRISPR systems really make a lot of sense. And in other cases, there's going to be limitations to those factors. In some cases, probably having a small molecule would be really advantageous. In other cases, because you can redose and retune. In other cases, having a permanent alteration would be advantageous because it's kind of a one and done approach. So um, it's really about the disease target. That's why we usually start projects not from the technology per se, but from the disease targets. Here are some clinical applications that are important. Let's use those as the kind kind of foundation for the project. Not that we necessarily, right? Not that not that we necessarily have to cure those diseases, but the idea is that those serve as like real world examples of, a, of an actual need that exists. And then let's back calculate, what would we want to do to try to target those? And then ideally you then expand that out and see if it actually solves problems in, in a more diverse set of indications. So that's a, that's a big picture cool. kind of view of the RNA targeting. But then in terms of specifics, like I really think like really you know seeing what sorts of affinity small molecules can get to RNA structures how good can they be um, in a general sense I think is a really open-ended question Um, thinking about delivery challenges with all genetic therapeutics but especially those that target RNA that's a real challenge that I think needs to be addressed in the next couple of years and then, you know, obviously things about selectivity and toxicity and all these issues around, you know, how do we do these safe and effectively in, in clinical context, I think is another is another area that really needs to be addressed.
0: Awesome. Maybe use that as a segue into okay, you do research and you know it'll create something kind of potentially useful. And you know, your Dickinson lab like a, a golden goose, so to speak, creates all these great little tools with a lot of potential. And uh, how do you think about essentially translating those technologies one day and maybe, you know, Dave will lose an inspiration uh, there, definitely. Uh, I'm trying to get Chris, he needs to step up his game a little bit. I'm trying to help Chris. Um, but how do you think about to into the Dickinson lab and you create all these cool tools? How do you think about structuring them and bring to bring them out to the world? Are you, you know how, how do you think as a laboratory and as a PI, you know, how to shepherd something you invent and publish and then take it to, you know, the real world. Which is kind of a big challenge thing for every lab.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's 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 a challenge. but I feel like it's also an opportunity, right? I mean, the the ecosystem of biotech, which includes academia and industry and VCs and government and everything, like that's really changing a lot, and in, in some I think really positive ways. You know, you know, when I was in graduate school, which wasn't that long ago, like it was almost like the default that everyone had to at least pretend that they wanted to be an academic for most of grad school. Right. That was just kind of the mindset that was peer pressured into you know, you're getting your PhD, of course, you must be thinking about being a professor one day. And I, I'm very inspired nowadays that students don't have that constraint. I mean, obviously, a lot of them want to be academics, but certainly not all of them. And I get students now that come in from day one, and they're like, I want to join your lab, I want to try to invent something and I want to try to start a company around that wow. when I graduate, right. And I think that's really exciting. It really changes the way we think about mentorship, it really changes the motivations around the PhD. Um, so I think, you know, Like, like all things in the world, right? The future is in the youth, right? So, you know, PhD students that are trained in this environment today where there's resources, there's opportunity, there's an I think that there's a growing kind of acknowledgement that young founders and young people who built ideas taking a leading role and trying to move them to the next stage at least early on there's a lot of exciting possibilities now so um again in my lab we try to foster that right just try to get people thinking about you know whether they're trying to go into academia or trying to go into biotech in one way or another what can they do to maximize the impact of their projects how do you you know fill in the ip around it Um, how do you network and get connected to people so um, but like I said, I think this is a changing environment. I think that as academia changes and as the biotech landscape changes, there's going to be more opportunities to figure out how to do this better. And I think it's just going to make a more rich experience within academia as, as we do these things better. Cool.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of like the four-minute mile. Once you see somebody else do it, they realize you can do it. So like, you know, like anecdotally, the fact that David Owens 25% of Prime, you know, that that's pretty exciting. I, I know. And so that kind of shows other scientists, Hey, maybe I can't own 25% of the company, but maybe 5%, 10% of the company at the end, you know? So I think it definitely shows, I think there's, you know, one, I see one arc, at least in biology, is inventors are getting rewarded more and more for their work. And then, you know, they're playing a bigger, you know, whether it's not David Luge, Craig Cruz, or um, even Carolyn has various companies. She's kind of uh, helped get started over the last decade or so. So I think...
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it is the money. But, but, you know, the other thing I would say about that is that, you know, it used to be not that long ago that if you were an academic, you would spend your, you know, 30, 40-year career working on some idea. And maybe if you were really lucky by the end of that, it would maybe try to get translated and it would either fail or not and i just think that what's really special about today's world is everything moves so quickly right you can have an idea you can vet it in your lab develop some ip around it push it out into the world and see if it actually works and get feedback on that idea and kind of the gratification or not that it that it that it made an impact and you know using david as an example i mean there are, there are people being dosed right now with base editors base editors weren't invented um you know they they weren't around 10 years ago and it's already in people i mean that's like the speed at which you can test ideas is really imp- it's amazing right and i think it it just it just changes the way you view academia right it really is this idea of like get ideas pushed out to the world and see if they have an impact and i think that's what gets me really excited and then how do you set up the environment to test as many good ideas as possible and see which ones actually you know have an impact in the broader world cool i think
0: that's a great ending and I think uh, we'll do a follow-up like a few years from now and then we'll see The you know, Dickinson Lab has spun out four companies, a bunch of papers. Really, you know, some of the grad students are involved in the companies uh, and that'd be kind of uh, using
1: David as a, as a
0: template almost.
1: I think- Oh my goodness. Oh, like I said before, David is not a template. David is someone to admire <laughs> and be inspired by, but do not, my advice to anyone young, don't try to replicate David. David is David and he is a special, special- human <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe try to replicate Brian. Try to do that. Uh, yeah, anyone could be me. This, yeah, exactly. We'll replicate Brian. I think this exactly. lab is exactly. a template. Okay, I had
0: a great time, Brian. Thanks for doing this. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing it you know, a few years from now and, and getting the update. Cool, sounds good. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely.